When I was a kid, my favorite TV show was The A-Team. Some of you remember The A-Team. It was an incredible show. Uh, Every episode had some similar beats, and it always began with the same introduction. In 1972, a crack commando unit was sent to prison by a military court for a crime they did not commit. These men promptly escaped from a maximum security stockade to the Los Angeles underground. Today, still wanted by the government, they survive as soldiers of fortune. If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find them, maybe you can hire the A-Team. Uh, I love this show. I love the uh, kind of normal storyline that happened every single episode. Somebody finds the A-team. They ask them for help. There are some adventures. And then at the end of every episode, there is something incredible they have to do, some kind of plan that Hannibal Smith comes up with that they have to enact. It often involves turning a car into a tank. Those are all my favorite episodes. But they, they enact this crazy plan. It works out great. And at the end of every episode, let's see how many of you remember this, Hannibal takes a cigar, he puts it in his mouth, and he says, I love it when a plan comes together. Yes, love it. Okay. I love it when he says, I love it when a plan comes together. So I, I thought about that a lot this week because when we get to this moment in the book of Genesis, I feel like this is where we see God's plan come together. And I love it when a plan comes together. Now, this is the moment where we see actually several plans come together. First, uh, most obviously, we see God's plan for Joseph's life. Remember all of the crazy things that have happened to Joseph to lead him to this point. Joseph is the favorite son of his father. Joseph has these incredible dreams from God that speak of his brothers bowing down to him. His father's favoritism and Joseph's sharing of his dreams lead his brothers to betray him, to try to kill him, to sell him into slavery. He's taken away to a foreign country. His father thinks he's dead. Then in this foreign country, he's a pretty good servant to his new master and, uh, in fact, demonstrates incredible faithfulness and character to God and to others. And that results not in reward but in punishment. He is taken from being the exalted slave to being an imprisoned person. He's taken to jail. Um, But even in prison, God doesn't leave him behind. And then we heard a little bit of this summary in our story, but then uh, these two important figures show up in prison years later, the cup bearer and the baker of the king of Pharaoh, and he interprets their dreams correctly. Another thing with dreams, uh, and then they're sent back. One of them dies. One of them's returned to his home and his, his status in Pharaoh's court. And then Joseph is forgotten for another two years. Another two years, he's just languishing in prison. And all of that leads up to this moment, 
And all of that leads up to this moment where we begin to see God's plan coming together for Joseph's life, where we begin to understand why he had to be sold by his brothers into slavery. And all those things had to happen so that God could position him here just for this moment, just for this incredible moment where he's going to be used by God to save the world from famine. We begin to see how important it was that Joseph was a man of character and faithfulness to God and to others so that when he is exalted into the position of being the second most important person in the kingdom of Egypt, we, we know he's a trustworthy and faithful leader. Now we begin to understand why dreams are such an important part of Joseph's story because it's going to be through all these dreams he's been practicing the interpretations of throughout the story that God will reveal his upcoming plans for the whole nation of Egypt, for the whole world. It, it's, like, it's like everything begins to kind of make sense. You remember uh, the scene in The Karate Kid? I showed this a couple years ago where Mr. Miyagi makes Daniel LaRusso keep wax on, wax off. Actually, I think it's wax on, wax off, and then paint the fence, right, and then sand the floor. And he gets angry, why are you making me do this? And then Mr. Miyagi says, let me show you why. And he realizes that all those motions were karate movements, right, teaching him to block attacks. Then, like, the plan starts to make sense. We see as we look backward, things falling into place. It's not just with Joseph's story, though. There's a bigger revelation happening in this chapter as well. So, we have Joseph's story. Then we have the family of Joseph, beginning with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, this family that God has made these incredible promises to, the centerpiece of which is that through you, I will bless every nation, every family on earth. And we've been waiting and wondering how in the world God is going to bless all the families on earth through this really messed up cast of characters until we get to Joseph and we see the plan come together and we see that Joseph is going to be the one through whom the whole world will be rescued from famine. And it's not just Joseph's story or his family's story. We also see the whole story of humanity come together a little bit and this chapter in Genesis. We've been talking from the beginning about this idea that the most important verse of the Old Testament is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. That the whole story of humanity is somehow about this coming hero who will crush evil, who will crush wickedness, who will crush the head of the serpent, but at great cost to himself, through suffering, he will emerge victorious. And then we get all these heroes that aren't quite that. Noah's great, but not quite that. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are great, but not quite that. And then we get Joseph, Joseph who goes through extraordinary suffering, more so than any of his ancestors could have imagined. Joseph who emerges from that suffering and is exalted to a position through which he can rescue the world. We say, ah, this seems like that serpent crusher we've been waiting for. In this one chapter, we see the plan for Joseph's life, the plan for Abraham's family, and the plan for all humanity come together. Sometimes this happens in our lives. There are moments Aren't there where we look back on our lives and we say, ooh, I do see, I do see the hand of God. I do see how God was working in all of those uncomfortable moments to prepare me for this really great moment. But we don't always see that. 
This is actually maybe one of the hardest parts of being a people of faith is that often we look back on our lives and we don't see God's plan coming together. Often we look back on our lives and we say, hey, uh, I would be okay with all those things that happened if I just knew why. If you would just show me how it's all going to work out in the end. If there'd just be some way that you could make sense of my story so that I understand, God, that you're still working for my good in all things. But we don't always see how our stories come together. And then, and then we make a dangerous mistake. Sometimes then we start trying to come up with our own explanation, our own explanation of how everything's supposed to make sense. And often our explanations are inadequate. We had a another mass shooting in Allen, Texas yesterday. I think there were nine people that were killed. I think there were seven more that are significantly injured. I actually, this is embarrassing, I actually had forgotten that that was the second one that happened this week um, because they just come so fast. It's a, it's a world we live in. It's a culture and a nation we live in where you can be shot and killed for ringing the wrong doorbell or parking in the wrong driveway. And as we look at these horrific events that happen so often that we begin to lose track of them, I think sometimes we can ask, who interprets a dream when it becomes a nightmare? Who makes sense of our lives when our lives don't make sense? How do we look at the mess that we've made and the mess that others have made and say, yeah, I do see God's plan coming together? How do we avoid doing that in a cheap way? There's an interesting conversation Pharaoh has with Joseph. Pharaoh says to Joseph, um, I have been told that you can interpret dreams. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And I love Joseph's answer. It is not I. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. It's not our job to make sense of the mess of our lives. It's not our job to make sense of the mess of our world. That's God's job. Uh, and God will give us, uh, actually, uh, it doesn't say favorable answer. It's kind of a weird translation. I don't know why they say that. Literally, it says, God will give Pharaoh a message of peace, a message of shalom. The story of Scripture is really just one story. It's the story of God making sense of our world and our lives and all that's broken in them. And when Jesus is asked to summarize that story, when Jesus is asked to say, hey, let me make sense of all of everything that's ever happened in Scripture, He does it in one sentence. Uh, this is in the 24th chapter of Luke when Jesus appears to His disciples after His resurrection. He says to them, These are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's saying, everything written about me in this whole Bible, there's no New Testament at this point, and this whole Bible must be fulfilled. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Oh, to be a fly on the wall at that Bible study, right? He opens their minds to understand the Scriptures. 
All we get is a summary. All we get is one sentence. And He said to them, thus it is written. This is Jesus' summary of the whole story of Scripture. Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Tim Mackey says, uh, if you asked people to summarize the Old Testament, that might not be the summary you get. That's Jesus' summary, though. The whole story of humanity is one story, that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in His name to all nations. If we read it well, that's the story of Joseph. It's the story of Jonah. It's the story of Israel and the exodus from Egypt. It's supposed to be our story. How are we to be a blessing to the nations? In the same way that Jesus was and Joseph was and all the figures that reflect Jesus were. We will suffer and then we will be resurrected. Here's the thing about resurrection um, resurrection is a little bit different than just being dead. Uh, when you're dead, uh, you don't know you're dead. The pain is only felt by others around you. By the way, the same thing happens when you're stupid. Um, <laughs> resurrection is a little bit different. Uh, resurrection uh, is this idea that the end is better than the beginning, um, that, that the, the death, the end of our story isn't really the end. It's just kind of a pause in the middle of the long tale that God is telling. Now, I, I often come back to the story at the end of Return of the King where Sam is sitting uh, in bed and Gandalf walks in who he thinks is dead and he says, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Uh, and that is the story of Joseph and it is the story of Jesus. Was Joseph betrayed by his brothers? Yes. Was it awful? Yes. Was he enslaved and imprisoned and forgotten? Yes. But on this side of the story, does it still feel awful? No. It feels like God's saving plan. We see how God brought everything together in a beautiful way through the life of Joseph, even out of his suffering. And the wounds of Christ that He bears after the crucifixion are now trophies of His victory, and the instrument of torture upon which the Creator was murdered by His creatures now hangs proudly in our sanctuaries as the proof of death's death. The resurrection promise is that the end is better than the beginning, that somehow out of our suffering comes this resurrection hope. And being in the serpent crusher's story, being part of the blessing to the nations, being little Christs means that we have to trust that eventually our story will work out like Joseph's, and eventually is the key. It took years for Joseph. It might take longer for us. Abraham lived a life with God, experienced miracles and blessing along with hardships, but Abraham never received fully what was promised. He never had a point where he saw his ancestors as many as the sand on the seashore. He never had a point where he saw all the land of Canaan given in his possession. He never saw his family be a blessing to all nations on the earth. 
we may not get to the resurrection part of our story before we die. And this is what Paul understands, what Paul articulates so beautifully in our Scripture this morning when he says, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in death and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. He says, I want a story like Jesus, and I know that's going to include suffering like Jesus. And I know after that suffering, it's going to include victory like Jesus. And at the end of my story, I will see God's plan come together. At the end of my story, uh, I will see how my story is part of the one story that God has always been telling. This doesn't mean that we seek out suffering. It just means we're not surprised by it. It means that we expect it will come and we believe that in this life or in the next, God will work resurrection from it. I just finished reading the Chronicles of Narnia with my youngest son. And yesterday we read the last of the last battle, Lewis's end story, kind of a summary of the book of Revelation. And at the end of that story, Aslan, who is Jesus, is speaking to um, those who have been the heroes throughout, the faithful um, Lucy and Peter and Edmund and others. And Aslan says, you do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leaped and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. As the children run through this new country of Aslan's, they begin to recognize that everything they see is somehow a reflection of the old Narnia, but just better. And as they run through, they begin to realize that they will never be parted from each other and from Aslan, from Jesus again, that what they have finally entered is the real Narnia, the real England, for us, the real America and Wisconsin and Rothschild. How things change when we recognize that God's plan will come together, even if it's not in our timing. In 1982, the leader of the Soviet Union died, um, Brezhnev. Uh, Brezhnev. Uh, Brezhnev was the second longest ruler of the Soviet Union after Stalin himself. And at his funeral, um, we sent an emissary. So I was our, actually our vice president, George H.W. Bush at the time. And at the funeral, um, Victoria Brezhnev was standing beside the coffin of her husband. It's important to remember that in the Soviet Union, uh, religion and faith were anathema, and atheism was uh, the language of the day. Um, by all accounts, Victoria Brezhnev and her husband uh, lived into that. They did not appear to be people of faith. Uh, and in fact, Brezhnev imprisoned priests and believers, closed seminaries and churches whenever they got in his way. 
But at his funeral, Victoria Brezhnev, his wife of 54 years, stood beside her husband's coffin until the last seconds before it was closed. Then, just as the soldiers touched the lid, Victoria leaned over her husband's body and made the sign of the cross. There, at the center of an atheist empire, she traced the image of our hope and salvation on the body of the man she had loved for almost, for more than half a century. Mr. Bush didn't know if she had faith in God's love for us or hope that there was more to our destiny than the black end of atheism, but to publicly express hope in Christ in that way in an atheist nation was an act of great courage. And it suggests that perhaps there is no point at which it is too late for us to join our story to Christ's story. Perhaps there is no point at which it is too late for us to say that we want to find in our lives that purpose that made Joseph's life and Jonah's life and Jesus' life make sense, that our calling is not so different. Whether we have been Christians our whole lives or whether we, like Victoria Brezhnev or the thief on the cross, at our last moments confess and recognize that our story of suffering and resurrection hope is God's story. That our calling to be a blessing to our families and to all families on earth by knowing the power of Christ and His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings is the invitation to hope beyond death. To recognize, as we do in the life of Joseph, as we do not always in our lives, that God has a plan and it's coming together. And this is the promise of the Christian faith that one day we will stand beside our King and beside one another and there may be honorary cigars handed out and we will say, I love it when God's plans come together. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. Amen.